Hi, I'm Brian Fabian Crane and I'm here with Sebastian Couture. On February 12th and 13th, we attended the Inside Bitcoins conference in Berlin. After two months of podcasting together, it was the first time we met in person. We had lots of fun interviewing many people from the Bitcoin community, attending interesting talks and capturing Bitcoin at this unique moment in its history. This is one of a series of episodes about this conference. This episode features two talks with different perspectives on Bitcoin exchanges. In the first segment, Jaron Vukashevich, CEO of Coinsetter, gives a talk on the interesting business opportunities in and around the Bitcoin exchange ecosystem. Then Nir Khalutsi, account executive at Encapsula, talks about some of the security challenges exchanges face every day and takes us through an actual DDoS mitigation scenario. So Jared Lukasevich is the Chief Executive Officer for CoinCenter, uh, which offers a high-performance leverage trading platform for Bitcoin. Prior to CoinCenter, he was the co-founder of Ticketometer. Uh, he spoke in New York, and he also spoke in Vegas, and uh, was quite popular there, so I expect you're going to be just as popular here. Let's give a big round of applause. So, uh, you know, I was going to talk about the Bitcoin exchange ecosystem, um, but I think there's a more pressing, pressing issue on everyone's mind. You know, so instead, I'm actually going to be talking about logging point mining today. I uh, hope that's not what we're going to uh, Just kidding. We're, uh, we're going to talk about Bitcoin. Um, how, do I, how do I move this forward? Is it So, uh, first of all, my name is Jaron Lukasevich. I'm the CEO and founder of Coinsetter. We're uh, an ECN-style Bitcoin exchange based in New York City. Um, we've created uh, basically a millisecond latency exchange, um, and we're aggregating a number of other exchanges on top of it to provide a direct source of liquidity to institutions, high-frequency traders, stuff like that. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's been a really exciting year. We're currently in a um, growing public beta, and uh, everything's uh, going really well. Um, we're also very much in the middle of a lot of regulation that's going on in the United States and dealing with a lot of those issues, and, uh, you know, that's one of uh, a few things we're going to talk about today. So, uh, you know, what, what we've noticed over the last few months is uh, if anyone was at, you know, some of the earlier Bitcoin conferences, uh, I, I actually didn't even wear a suit to those. Uh, there are a lot more suits than in space right now. And, uh, you know, you can, you can visibly see this. So um, you're, you're seeing a, a huge entrance of high net worth individuals. Uh, as a company, you know, we're starting to be contacted by brokerage houses, especially, I would say. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, retail and institutional interest in Bitcoin. But I would say that, you know, even just through second market, you can see that uh, uh, Bitcoin is growing and, and, uh, and smart money is really moving into the space. Um, you know, another thing that we've seen is 
the people who are interested in Bitcoin, a lot of them have really become a distributed group of arbitrages. So these are people who just, you know, looked at the exchanges, they said, oh, yeah, I can make money by moving it around, and I'll, you know, look at the prices. It's very simple. Um, you know, these people are becoming smarter and smarter, really taking advantage of the different APIs that exchanges uh, have. Another thing that they're also finding, though, is that uh, a lot of the arbitrage opportunities in the Bitcoin space uh, that they think exist at first don't actually exist. I think, like, pretty much every week on Reddit, you find a new person asking, you know, why is the price on Knockbox so much higher? Or that used to be the case. Uh, it's obviously been a very extraordinary uh, couple of weeks now. But uh, when you look at uh, all the different the price differentials between the exchange, it uh, definitely comes down to banking issues uh, related to each exchange uniquely. Um, you know, when we look at exchanges we can aggregate, you know, uh, Bitstamp is the uh, only one we've aggregated to date. And I think when you look at uh, how people view Bitstamp, again, extraordinary week, but, uh, you know, Bitstamp is definitely considered to be the market price because it's the only exchange that really has uh, uh, a free market, um, very, very little banking problems, and uh, historically no Bitcoin control problems. Um, you know, one, uh, you know, we, uh, we're also hearing, just uh, interestingly, uh, a number of millionaires uh, have been buying up large Bitcoin stakes. Uh, this is something that we've been hearing uh, pretty consistently over the last few months. Uh, you have a number of people who are, are pitching Bitcoin to high net worth individuals uh, using, uh, you know, I think the pitch is usually something like put 1% of your net worth into it and you like double your wealth in 5 to 10 years. Um, people really are starting to enter the market under this uh, premise. And uh, finally, uh, you know, bid stamp, uh, private deals have, have typically happened slightly below bid stamp. And what you've seen is that uh, private deals have started to happen above Bitstamp, which really shows that uh, the, the demand for Bitcoin, the demand for uh, Bitcoin, especially by high net worth individuals, is growing. And I think that's one of the uh, best examples of it. So, you know, I think when, when I uh, gave a similar speech in Las Vegas in, in December, uh, China was really entering the market. Um, a lot has changed. So, uh, you know, if you can trust Chinese statistics, in December, there was 70% of the market. Uh, that's now down to 51% of trading, but China is obviously still a very important part of the Bitcoin ecosystem. This is uh, Biden Trends. Uh, that, that spike was December, and you can also see that uh, um, the Google searches, the Baidu searches that are happening in China have calmed down immensely, and... Uh, you know, I think, uh, based on the slide I'm about to show you, it, it really shows that China doesn't necessarily have the driving effect that it did uh, a couple of months ago. So this is a slide I showed in uh, the December Bitcoin conference in Las Vegas. Um, you, you can visibly see that China was driving more prices, and it happened three times. Um, you know, one thing we noticed, we have an intern we, uh, we put on kind of translating or maybe mistranslating uh, Chinese news articles. And uh, one, one thing we noticed is that uh, U.S. articles were consistently interviewing and quoting uh, people in China, and people in China were consistently quoting me and people in the U.S. Uh, what we figured out is that pretty much no one had a clue what was going on, and uh, it was kind of a self-propagating cycle in December. Uh, China was driving itself up. They didn't really know why. They were 
buying Bitcoin, but they were, and uh, that was driving world prices up. Now, since then, uh, the chart has changed dramatically. So, um, you know, alongside the waning interest and just, you know, Bitcoin searches, search engine searches, uh, you know, you can see that, uh, you know, the market has, has fallen with that. And since then, uh, BTC China and Bitstamp have, have basically been in parity uh, in terms of prices. Uh, that lasts even today. So that that's a very interesting thing to think about. Um, you know, it tells you that the market has, uh, you know, the arbitrageurs have really done their part, uh, at least for the time being. And, uh, you know, one, uh, one other thing that I think many of us have noticed but is kind of hard to explain is that the Bitcoin market has remained extremely resilient. Um, you know, every week for the past couple of months, we have bad news after bad news and, and the market price stays up. Um, it's, it's a pretty bullish sign. You, finally, you know, so we're uh, we're a U.S.-based Bitcoin exchange, and uh, you know, doing our best to operate legally, and uh, I'm trying not to go to jail. So, uh, you know, we uh, we've really been working hard on get you know learning about the regulation in, in the country and and how to operate and accept customer funds. Um, that's definitely been a long learning process, and and it's still not finished. Uh, even with talk of a bit license right now, you know, no one really knows what that means. Um, currently, it doesn't mean anything. So, uh, you know, it's it's uh, a challenge to operate a business when you know you you are uh, you know that you're going to have to pay for regulation. You know it's coming, but you know you're also trying to show investors that you're you're getting that uptick in in business, and uh, and so that that's something that as a U.S. Bitcoin exchange, and we're we're not necessarily alone in that. Um, it's uh, it's one of the challenges that you have to work really hard at. Uh, the current environment in the U.S., uh, you know, we're about six to twelve months from a, a solid regulatory framework. Uh, you know, right now you do see second market really leveraging their broker dealer license, and uh, and I think that there's a lot more to come there. Uh, but uh, you know, for most companies, it's uh, it's you know still going to be a wait and see approach. The best thing you can do is really prepare your technology for that day that you're allowed to operate. Uh, second, support from banks has, has continued to deteriorate. Um, we, we're actually one of the few Bitcoin companies that have a U.S. bank account. It took us three months to get. Uh, it was very, very difficult, and our bank is our ultimate regulator. Uh, right now, it's an operating account with a promise to help us get MSB licenses. But, uh, you know... What, what you're constantly seeing is, you know, most companies aren't getting these bank accounts. Um, and, and, and on the other side, you're also seeing traders have a lot of issues. So, you know, I, I find us, you know, connecting people with, with uh, Maltese banks uh, just because, you know, they're, if they're running a, a Bitcoin trading practice uh, out of, you know, maybe their Chase account, these are getting shut down and, uh, you know, that it happens overnight. So, uh, you know, I think the banking situation will improve, but uh, right now we're at a sort of an odd point where, uh, you know, banks are, are very scared to work with Bitcoin companies, and probably for good reasons. Um, you know, I think compliance alone, you have a lot of uh, inexperience in the Bitcoin space still. Another thing that uh, you know we've really learned is uh, you know we, we expect that money transmission uh, money transmission is obviously uh, a part of the regulatory mindset that we have to take. But money transmitter licenses, as 
was discussed in, uh, in the bid license hearing, really don't fit Bitcoin companies. Um, you know, one of the biggest issues that I've noticed is uh, in, in some states, if you hold Bitcoins, you would also have to hold an equal amount of U.S. dollars or be bonded for it. And, and this is something that really doesn't make a lot of sense and it would be completely uh, not feasible to run a business like that. So that, that really shows you that it, it's not just going to be an overnight process where companies go get money transfer licensing. The, the laws are going to have to change, and that's going to take regulators' time to uh, to you know create those laws. Uh, second, you know, I look at I think there's still a big learning for the regulators. So uh, looking at comparing, for instance, uh, Coinbase to blockchain, a, a regulator will look at both of these companies and say these are companies holding customer funds and and they both need to be regulated, but uh, a deeper look into blockchain will show you that blockchain as a company doesn't necessarily hold customer funds. Um, they're actually much more similar to a desktop wallet. So, you know, what what is the regulation that Armory would have to face at, versus blockchain? Should those be different? Uh, in my opinion, probably not. So, you know, really, uh, I think it's also going to take a lot of time for regulators to uh, come to come to grips with with uh, issues like that. You know, I mean, this whole financial revolution that's happening right now is really based off of minimizing uh, the, the place that the third parties have as, as a trusted third party. Um, you know, blockchain's a great example of, of a company minimizing that. And, uh, and I think that this is still very early days. Uh, regulators are going to have a lot of catching up to do. Um, you know, finally, uh, Another, another very difficult question, uh, this was brought up in the bit license hearings, is dark wallet technology, altcoin mixing. These are things that are going to exist. Uh, you know, while we have one faction of the space really pushing towards getting licenses and, and creating regulation for companies like ours, you have another faction really working hard on uh, you know, pushing Bitcoin to the anonymous limits. Um, that's going to happen. So, um, you know, how is regulation going to play to that? Will uh, will companies that don't have public ledgers that are easily decide, you know, that you can decipher are those are those technologies going to become illegal? Or will they not? Uh, you know, there are a lot of unquestioned, un- unanswered questions here. And uh, uh, you know, I think despite all of this uncertainty, U.S. companies, uh, of course, I speak of you know. Uh, Bitcoin is global, uh, and I speak as a as a U.S. citizen with a U.S. company. But in the U.S., uh, currently, foreign companies are winning. That that's not going to be sustainable. In the end, when you look at the regulation that's going to be coming into the space, U.S. companies are going to win. So the companies that can survive right now and build the technology that will be needed to quickly run when regulation uh, starts to kick in, those are going to be the companies that win. And, uh, you know, I, I also strongly believe that someday banks will acquire Bitcoin exchanges. Uh, so while they hate Bitcoin right now, uh, you know, over the long run, they're going to see that uh, there's a strong uh, profit incentive to owning, owning a Bitcoin exchange, especially as this becomes a backbone to uh, peer-to-peer payments and, and uh, even international money transfers. Uh, you know, owning that exchange transaction, the profits associated with that is going to be very important. And uh, what you know, some of the large forex companies and and the banks don't see yet is that uh, you know we're really creating new customer bases for them, and, and someday we'll see that. 
Um, you know, finally, uh, you know, I just want to touch upon uh, a view I have about altcoins, and uh, you know, uh, this is where I start talking about doggy coin and uh, and uh, bump that up. But uh, just kidding. But uh, you know, when I look at an altcoin, you know, you have a lot of interesting altcoins coming out right now. Um, what what is really important in an altcoin for it to succeed over the long run is that it has a useful infrastructure above it. So looking at a lot of the distributed securities exchanges coming out and, and technologies like that, uh, though, those are, are very good case points. I think we're just touching the beginning of this in general. Ripple would be another system that you know you look at if banks demand their payment network, the XRP is brought up in value just by consequence. So uh, looking at any sort of uh, distributed public public ledger, if you think that that ledger has use to people and will be used, um, you know that that's a decent bet at least that uh, that that altcoin below it uh, may rise in value. And uh, with that, I'm happy to answer any questions. Name the bank you're working with? Uh, um, it wasn't clear. Yeah, uh, no, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> question. Uh, you know, we work with Sparkasi Bank in Malta, uh, our US bank, you know, disclosed. Yeah. Anything else? Say where you're from, also. Yeah, um, Alice, I'm from New York. So, um, I was interested you put up the um, the China exchange trading volume. How, from an exchange perspective, do you know what's fudged and what's real in terms of volume? There's a lot of accusations of 4B fudging the volume um, a couple of, over the last few months, and you know only it only dropped when there was a lot of attention. Yeah, 4B is crazy. Um, I, you know, we we've tried to do a little bit of research, and I think we came up with a very similar thought that. Uh, Possibly even the majority of their trading is just completely fabricated. So uh, you know that that's a tough thing in showing a, a global statistic. Um, uh, someday I think we'll, we'll figure that out. Especially as more and more companies link to exchanges, uh, those issues become really apparent because the actual liquidity there you know doesn't necessarily match what they're displaying in terms of transaction volume. Austin Brown from Munich. Uh, question on the typical American customer. What do you think? How many? What percentage of American customers and American Bitcoin trading volume is handled through American companies like Coinbase or local Bitcoins? And um, uh, how many people and which kind of people are really going overseas to do the transactions using Bitstamp or other exchanges? Well, an important thing to think about with Coinbase as well is uh, you know, the backbone to Coinbase's Bitstamp. So, uh, and, and that that's pretty common for any any other brokers in the space. And uh, pretty much every you know Bitstamp is a liquidity source for everyone right now. Coinsider as well. So, um, uh, you know, I would say I, I haven't looked at at Coinbase's recent. Uh, transaction volume, I assume maybe it's something like 60 million a month. Or, uh, I'm sure it's public somewhere. But, uh, uh, you know, I think the, the important thing to, to think about is, you know, if, if Bitstamp or a lot of these other exchanges are, are operating uh, 
you know, accepting U.S. customer funds, offering full exchange of Bitcoin, um, you know, and they are subject to, you know, what FinCEN laid out in March. Uh, I think it's going to be very tough for them to get money transmitter licenses, given that they're not based in the U.S., um, uh, given that they've been operating illegally for so long, and even if they get those licenses, they're, they're going to have huge, huge fines, so millions of dollars worth. So, um, And I know Nate, he's, he's uh, pretty cheap, so I don't know if uh, he, might, he might not go into the U.S., but, uh, uh, but I mean, it's, it's pretty early to say, but I think when you look at uh, other industries that are regulated in the U.S., especially in financial services, it tends to be protective of, of U.S. companies, and they try to push non-U.S. companies out. Yeah, Robert from Sweden. Um, how do you think the, the environment will look like in that one year? Will it be just a few? Exchanges or a lot of them, so you have like one exchange in every jurisdiction. Yeah, I I bifurcate the, the industry into like a full order book exchange. That's what Coinsetter is. Um, that that tends to be the backbone of liquidity, and that's also not that's also excluding maybe futures and options market that uh, companies in the space such as Coinsetter may be working on as well. Um, but uh, you know, I think I think the, the full order book exchange uh, that'll be just a few companies. Um, those are very difficult to build. Um, you know, I, I can tell you that we're going to build ours in three months uh, with many more features, and uh, to build a really low latency system that is well tested and, and works properly. I mean, that takes you nine to twelve months. Um, so I think there will only be a few really good full order book exchanges, half of it's who can get the licenses. Um, on the kind of like cash to Bitcoin side, I think that's going to be a very decentralized market. So, um, you know, we recently saw it happen in the UK, I believe with uh, Barclays and Lloyd, uh, Barclays. Uh, uh, I think you're going to start to see stuff like that happen at Wells Fargo. Uh, so I think you're going to see that. You know, you're going to see a lot of lawsuits pop up. Uh, it's that that cash to Bitcoin component, I think that's actually a really important part of the space. Um, I mean, you know, I use my ATM card to pull out euros uh, when I came here, and, and I really look at uh, more and more people are going to hold Bitcoin or at least use the Bitcoin infrastructure in some form to pull cash out when they go to a, com- a country uh, and also put it back. But that that's another tough part. So uh, pretty early days, but I, I think that. That side of the business, any any company that, that kind of deals with people in person, uh, those are going to be very decentralized. Hey, awesome presentation. All right, thanks a lot. Yeah. Good job. It seems to be a very popular topic recently with regards to Bitcoin. It's been a lot of attacks on Bitcoin exchanges. Uh, we, we actually protect two of the largest Bitcoin exchanges, that's Bitcoin China and Bitstamp. Um, so first a little bit about Encapsula, we, uh, we define ourselves as a web application delivery in the cloud. So what we do is we offer different services uh, that relate to website security and website acceleration. That includes uh, DDoS mitigation, web application firewall, uh, CDN, uh, load balancing, and lots of other services. So first
first a few words about uh, DDoS in general. DDoS is a very popular and common type of attack on websites. And uh, the purpose of these attacks is to deny service for real visitors to the website. And usually it's done by generating false traffic in different ways uh, to the website. So that's a very general definition. Actually, there's hundreds of different ways of how to generate DDoS. And it's actually it's also evolving together with the internet. So the, the, the methods that are used to generate attacks and the volume of attacks keeps growing and keeps changing all the time. Uh, in general, uh, you can divide the type of attacks, DDoS attacks, to three categories. So the first category is called volume-based attacks or volumetric attacks. And the purpose of these attacks is to generate very large amounts of traffic, to send them to a web server or a, a website, and simply clog uh, the, the, the bandwidth or the capacity of the server. Um, there's different ways to do that, but usually uh, the technique used is called amplification. So if the hacker has uh, access to a certain amount of bandwidth, say uh, 10 megabits per second, they're actually using, they're not sending it directly, directly to the attack website, they're using other servers, like DNS servers, and they get them to send uh, the traffic to the attack website. And when they do that, they uh, actually uh, increase their capacity. So they can actually generate a much larger attack than the bandwidth that they control. Um, so the, the, the only way to deal with these kinds of attacks is to have enough ca capacity or infrastructure to take in the attack. It doesn't matter if you can tell that this is junk traffic or that this is a volumetric attack, you're still going to get clogged. So you need to have enough uh, uh, capacity to take in the attack while letting the legitimate traffic in. Uh, the second type is actually the two first categories are sort of similar, they're usually we call them network attacks because they all happen on the network layer, not on the application layer. And the second type is uh, uh, protocol attacks. This, these attacks, they try to abuse uh, other resources of the server, not the bandwidth. So it could be networking resources, it could be uh, connections, it could be the firewall, something to do with the, with the networking on the server. Um, the most common type of attack there is called skin floods. That's where the, the hackers, they send a lot of, um, uh, they open a lot of connections with the attack server and they never, never close them. So you get a, a server that keeps opening connections until they reach their capacity. Then when a real visitor try to uh, connect to the server, they can't. And the third uh, type of attack is called application layer attacks. This is where the hackers use usually HTTP uh, traffic. Um, that, that seems to be like real visits to the website. There's different ways to do that, with different levels of uh, sophistication. But uh, the, the problem there, these attacks usually they're much smaller, they don't require a lot of bandwidth, but they're much harder to mitigate, because it requires being able to tell the difference between the fake traffic, the robotic traffic, and the real visitors to the site. So you don't want to block everyone when you're under attack, because it defeats the purpose. You want to be able to let the real visitors in and block the, the, the robotic traffic. So I'm going to uh, present a case here of one of the attacks we recently mitigated. It was one of the most sophisticated attacks we had to deal with. It actually lasted a long time, it lasted several weeks. It, it really never died down, it's still happening uh, on occasions, but the, the major waves of it uh, we managed to, uh, uh, to mitigate. The target of this attack, I'm not going to be able to say the name of the company, it's one of our customers, they're a, a trading platform, very successful trading platform, 
And they're actually a uh, multi-tenant environment, so they allow businesses to open a trading platform on their infrastructure. And that creates a vulnerability for them because uh, if one of the tenants in the environment gets hit, everyone suffers. This is actually what happened with this attack. One of the brands, one of the trading brands on their platform got hit, and that caused problems for the entire uh, system. So the first wave of this attack was a volume-based attack. Uh, it was a scene flood of uh, 30 gigabits per second. That's actually quite a lot of traffic, but it's not a huge attack in today's standards. Today we see attacks of 100 gigabits per second and even above that. But the thing that was interesting about this phase of the attack is that the, the hackers weren't using amplification. So what they told us is they have access to a lot of resources. If you can generate 30 gigabits per, per second of traffic, just using your own resources without amplifying the traffic, that means you have a, a huge amount of resources, which in this, in this context it means they have a possession of a very large botnet where that they use to generate the attack. Yes, sorry to interrupt, but can you please explain what DNS amplification is? <coughs> sorry? Could you please explain what DSN, DNS amplification is? Yeah, DNS amplification is, is one of the methods I talked about before to generate volumetric attacks. And what they do is they query open DNS servers uh, with queries that the response for which is very large. Like they ask from all the information you can give me about a DNS. And then they spoof the return address. So instead of you getting the answer back, you spoof it to the attack website. So what you get is a lot of DNS servers sending answers to a website that never asked the question. Okay, so uh, what we did to mitigate this uh, phase of the attack is what we usually do with the volumetric attacks is we divide the traffic. Uh, I mentioned we are a CDN, so we have data centers all around the world. And we use networking protocols to divide the attack traffic between them. So this is how we can absorb. Now, each one of the servers, we have uh, redundant servers that are, uh, that are meant to take in the DDoS traffic. So this is how we managed to uh, take the, the attack. Also, we did some blacklisting of the IPs that we could identify to be uh, generating the attack. <coughs> so that came the second phase of the attack, and here the actors already started to use application their attack. So what they did is they used adject requests um, to, uh, to access a resource, a very um, heavy resource on, the, on, on a customer's application. So the reason they, they used Ajax is it's not by coincidence. Um, some of the techniques that we use to teleport bots from humans, you can't use them with Ajax. Because what we do a lot of the times is we send JavaScript code to a visitor, and we try to see if whoever is on the other side can process the JavaScript. So um, real browsers can process JavaScript, bots usually can't. But when it comes to Ajax, we cannot use this means because Ajax requests don't process JavaScript. So the hackers were already becoming aware that the customer is on Capsula, and they became aware of some of the means that we were using, so they used Ajax to, um, to confuse us. Also, the, the resource they were accessing was something that only registered users on the application could access. So what they did is they got a hold of a, of a list of registered users, so they can use them to, to access the resource. There was another indication that this attacker was well prepared for the attack and they prepared ahead. 
So the way we block this part of the of the attack is um, since we couldn't use the normal means that we use, which is JavaScript and cookie tests. Uh, what we did is we used uh, behavioral uh, detection. So this is a, a, a filtering method we use where we try to identify behavioral uh, aspects of the visits that tell us that there are bots. So, <coughs> for example, we could look at the rate that the requests are coming, at the variance of the, of the rate of requests if someone is accessing a resource every second that tells us, you know, maybe it's a robot, maybe it's not a, a human. There's lots of other parameters that go into that. Uh, also, reputation techniques, so we will start identifying uh, IPs or combinations of IPs, headers, and so on. And that helped us uh, identify the, the attack requests. <coughs> so that took care of the second phase of the attack, and after a while there was a third phase of the attack. And what happened in this phase is that were starting to use um, their botnet, they were actually popping up real browsers on infected computers on the botnet that they were controlling. So, the way it was supposed to work is the, uh, the browser was supposed to open without a UI. So, whoever got infected by the virus would actually open up a lot of browsers, but the users would not see them. But it turns out that the hackers, they had a bug in the in the virus, and it, on Vista machines, it opened up the browsers uh, with the UI. So what, what we had is a lot of people that started seeing 20 browsers open up at the same time. <coughs> and since we were already mitigating the attack, they would see Capsula's logo on the browsers. So what that caused is a lot of people thought we were the virus that was uh, affecting them. So we got started getting a lot of hate calls, a lot of angry, <laughs> angry people calling us saying, I never installed in Capsula, why I put my computer, why I open up 20 browsers on my computer. Um, so how we did, did we handle that part of the attack? So what we did eventually is we got in touch with one of the people who were infected and uh, we got a hold of the, of the Trojan, of the virus itself. Then we started reverse engineering it to see how it, would, how, how it worked. So they gave us some information about how the control center for the attack was sending comments to the bots. Um, and using that, we started to create signatures to identify the bots. So that helps us, helped us block uh, this way of the attack also. So when that died down, came the fourth wave of the attack. That was the most intense uh, part of it. And what the hackers use in this case, they, they use something called headless browsers. So that headless browsers are software that imitates a browser. Uh, it's more advanced than a simple bot because it can really do anything a browser can do, including um, perform JavaScript, uh, handle cookies, and so on. The specific type of headless browser you see was uh, PhantomJS. This is the open source code. Usually it's used for uh, load testing and stuff like that. But in this case it was used for an attack. And, and the, the, the traffic sent in this phase of the attack was huge. So we saw, it was 150 hours, where we saw 180,000 different IPs used. Uh, 700 million requests per day. And you can see in the animation that I was also distributed globally. Um, and also we noticed that the hackers were also getting more and more sophisticated and they noticed that we were using behavioral filters to block the attack. So what they did is they started to uh, try and counter our behavioral filters by adding a lot of randomality 
in how the bots were used. So things like the rate of request were randomized, uh, the IPs that were used, everything was ran randomized to seem like real people. Um, so what we did actually in this case uh, to mitigate the attack is well, we couldn't use, again, we couldn't use the JavaScript uh, tests and cookie tests we usually do because headless browsers can handle them. And we couldn't use behavioral, it was hard to use behavioral because the, the hackers were um, you know, trying to avoid that. Luckily, we, we're not new to PhantomJS, or it's not new to us. Uh, we have a lot of information about known bots like PhantomJS. Um, and we, we create what we call signatures for these kinds of bots. So a signature can be a combination of attributes like headers, uh, whether the header is written in lowercase or uppercase, um, you know, this, uh, in, in coding, how the, how the bot handles encoding, and then uh, that helps us identify this box. So this is a filter that uh, exists in our, in our system, it's been there for a long time. So we can easily identify that the requests were coming from PhantomJS. Now, with a regular customer, we don't usually block that, because it could be a legitimate uh, uh, request. But since this was a huge attack being launched on our customer, we changed the rules so every Phantom JS would pop up a capture for the visitor. <coughs> so this gave a chance for people who were um, falsely identified as Phantom JS to redeem themselves by filling up the capture. Uh, surprisingly, that hardly happened. So most of the almost all the requests were blocked, and no one managed to fill, to fill up the capture. Uh, so this is how we blocked this uh, phase of the attack. Okay, so, and this was the last major phase of the attack, where actually this customer keeps getting hit by smaller waves, so the hackers will never uh, entirely give up, but uh, nothing that really has an effect on our customer. So I'm going to uh, mention some, because the five commandments of this mitigation, these are like conclusions from, from this case and other cases that we uh, help mitigate of what you should look for in a DDoS mitigation service. So the first commandment is absorb all that is cast upon you. That means that that relates to the um, volumetric attacks. And really the only thing you can do against these attacks is have enough infrastructure. If you get in a solution, a DDoS mitigation solution that has under 100 gigabits per second capacity, you're not doing anything. So you need to get a, a service that has a very large capacity to, uh, to take these attacks. <coughs> Second commandment, thou should be invisible. So that means uh, your regular visitors should be unaware that you're being attacked. Otherwise, if you're mitigating an attack and the regular visitors get, get blocked or they have some effect, a negative effect on their browsing experience, then again, you're not doing anything. Especially when it comes to trading systems, you don't want people thinking that you're being attacked. Um, you know, it gets them worried when, when they know that you're under attack. So, but we, we call it false positives. With every mitigation process, some of the real visitors are going to get identified as, as bots and blocked. But you should uh, try and get a service that minimizes the rate of false positives. The third amendment that he used innocent step forward. So, in those cases that do happen when real people get blocked, you need to give them a chance to redeem themselves. That usually would be a capture, filling up a capture. 
Or if they get completely blocked, you need to uh, give them a chance to contact you or someone and say that, that they've been blocked. So just blocking them without any message or any information on why they've been blocked, uh, it's not going to work. So the fourth commandment, respect the internet bot. So just categorically blocking all the bots is also not a good solution because there are those bots that you do want to let in, like uh, Google Bot and other search engines. And if you block them for, say, several days, you're going to get hurt. Your website is going to get hurt just as much as from the videos. So you need to be aware of the kind of bot that accesses your website and only block those, you know, that what we call the bad bots. And fifth commandment, commandment is precise detection is divine. Uh, that means we usually don't want to be in DDoS mode always. So the, our customers, they're either on a regular mode or DDoS mode. So if you're always on DDoS mode, you're going to get a lot of false positives and you're going to pop up catches to people. You don't want that. But you also don't want to monitor your website all the time. So you need some sort of an automated system that will trigger DDoS mode when it's required. Okay, usually it's a rate limit, it's something that measures uh, the number of bots that enter your website per second, and then when a certain level uh, gets exceeded, you should go into DDoS mode. That's it. Questions? Since we are handling with Bitcoin, uh, um, I wonder if these mitigation services, they have to know the actual traffic, right? So you have to read a cookie or something like that. Um, um, since you are uh, using these uh, cookies for, uh, for to, to check if the user has COVID capture or something like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, then if you use if we as a business want to protect our customers from uh, uh, alien stealing, we use HTTPS and so the traffic has to be routed through your service, right? So you know the content of the users. So if they put in their password, for instance, mm -hmm. you know their password, right? We know it but we don't keep it. We don't save the information on a server. Filter it and we let it through. So that's okay. Um, I probably you do that, but um, in Bitcoin, it's always about approval and trust. So, how can we prove to the users that the password is not stored in any other places? First of all, if it's HTTPS and it's going to be HTTPS, also while you're on Encapsula, so it's going to be encrypted from the visitor to Encapsula and from Encapsula to your server. So, that's you know, just like any other HTTPS communication, it's encrypted. Um, so, and, and as I said, that, that part of the way where we decrypt it and, and filter the traffic, we don't save anything. So, that's that in our reputation. Okay, thank you. Okay, um, I see this is all about DOS. How about something like additional security, like clouds that it has, like a SQL injection, cross-site scripting, and uh, DOS is just a base, it's, it's primitive. I mean, it's all it's been around for a long time. Now, like, there's a much, much bigger trend than just DOS. I mean, if you if we go with them, with your DNS, change DNS, it's to you. Is there any additional areas of security? 
Yeah, uh, well actually the, the, the topic of this presentation was DDoS, but we do a lot more than that, and it's a good question. We, we do, what you're talking about is a web application firewall. So that's the thing that blocks SQL injections, uh, cross-site scripting, and all that. We actually, we're, uh, I haven't spoken about that, but we're a subsidiary of Imperva, which is a, a provider of web application firewall. It's, it's a well-known company in this field. And we started as a company that offers their web application firewall technologies for the cloud. Only then we added DDoS and the other services. But that's still, that's a major part of our service. And you know, any enterprise account gets the web application firewall as well. Hi, is your service tailored in, in any way to um, Bitcoin ecosystem or exchanges, or is it just a generic DDoS prevention service? Uh, it, it's generic, but it can be tailored, not, not to Bitcoin in general, but to, to a customer. So, uh, the, the part that's uh, uh, web application firewall that I've spoken about uh, is customizable to your specific application. So, if you have certain patterns in your API, that seem to be a, a attack, you can uh, exclude them, or you can add other patterns that you're worried about. Um, so it's very customizable. Part of it, of it is done by us, we have a managed service. But you can also do it yourself. So you have uh, custom rules that you can add to the web application firewall and then fit them to your specific application. I thought actually I got the mic. Can I ask you a quick question? Um, you mentioned that you don't really store any packets. But in cases, but you host the SSL certificate, right? Yeah. And what about cases where a client has an EB certificate? Does that invalidate an EB certificate if you're the one who's actually hosting the certificate? So we have two options of how to host the certificate. One of them is a, an encapsula-generated certificate, in which case the visitor is not going to see your, your branded certificate, it's going to see ours. And it's a sound certificate, so it's going to be joined with a lot of other domains. But for enterprise customers, you have an option to, to upload your own certificate uh, to our servers, and then the, the, the user is going to see uh, your certificate, just the same as they navigate directly to your site. Thank you. And what is the source of one numbers that I hope I got right? I think you cited something like 10,000 layer 7. Uh, web protocol uh, request per second to me. Uh, I'm asking because unlike the rest, to me that seems something that on a system that scales out, I could be, uh, easily handle. But I'm worried, uh, will tomorrow or next uh, year we see attacks with 10 million such requests per second or something like that? Right, so if, if you have a, a mitigation service, especially a cloud-based mitigation service, then it doesn't matter from your point of view because these requests are never going to be preserved. They get filtered in the cloud before they ever reach the server. So it's, it's actually our problem. Exactly, the request where I think you yourself said there's a high risk of false positive. Oh? False positive. Yeah, but the rate of false positive doesn't depend on the number of requests. It depends on how well we know to tell them apart from real ones. So, so it's, it's, it's a, a measurement that we use to, to check ourselves to see how well we can tell apart bots from humans. But it doesn't, it depends on how well our rules do that. It doesn't depend on the number of requests. Yeah, thanks for the presentation. Just a, a small short question. Is there any way to get these guys? 
get these guys? Yeah. <laughs> we, we don't deal with that. We, we don't even try to, to get that. We, we try to only block the attacks. I'm not aware of any service that, that has the approach of trying to identify the source and then getting them. It's, uh, it's too complicated, it's too hard, and there's a lot of ways to identify themselves. So it's just a matter of blocking. Just to show you a question. What is relatively the motivations for these kind of attacks? The two main motivations are commercial, so you know, competitors, business competitors, and political. Uh, Um, and another question, uh, if for, for the web uh, front end uh, we would use an, an, a mediation service like yours, is it any possible to get like uh, with an API the IP addresses or something like that from the um, bots you think that are bots right now so we can just block on our other services that are not web exposed if they try to attack us from the same locations, for instance, is it possible to get these IPs? Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm to get APIs to do what? <coughs> APIs to get the um, IP addresses, for instance, from the services that you think right now are trying to attack us, so it can block on other gateways from other front ends. So yeah, first of all, we offer APIs. You can also, we have a dashboard for users, so you can see we have like an event log where you can see exactly who tried to, uh, you know, to do DDoS or to infiltrate to a server. You can get the IPVs for there, or you can use the APIs. Uh, well, congratulations on keeping people's interest this late in your day, right before the drink reception. Oh, really awesome. Awesome. Let's give them a big round. We hope you enjoyed this episode about Inside Bitcoins Berlin. If you liked our coverage of the conference, please consider tipping us at epicenterbitcoin.com tips. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at epicenterbitcoin.com newsletter. We really enjoyed providing you coverage of this conference. We're excited about the journey we're on with Epicenter Bitcoin and we're grateful to have you as our listener.